Lord, we love you and we thank you for your great grace. We thank you, God, that we can run to our Father and fall into your grace. We don't have to hide from you. We don't have to wait. We can come as we are. We can come right now. And you will do surgery on our hearts, taking out the heart of stone and replacing it with a heart of flesh. And you will fill us with your love and your grace anytime we ask. And so, Father, we pray that as we uh, spend some time doing something a little different, something a little special, that you would just guide our time and bless us, speak to us through it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I've been talking a lot lately about a wonderful book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Comer. If you haven't gotten it, if you haven't read it, I highly recommend you do. In addition to that, I have found myself listening to some of John Mark Comer's sermons. And one I've recently listened to is uh, a sermon series that's based on one of the points in the book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, about our need for silence and solitude. One of the things that he talks about, if, if I didn't already say it, turn to Matthew chapter 4. And then, and then we're going to go back to uh, 1 Kings 18 and 19. One of the things that he talks about in silence and solitude is how it is uh, seriously a lost art, um, though it is extremely necessary to our growing relationship with Christ. We can have a relationship with Christ um, and not have the practice of silence and solitude, but most likely it will be a fairly stagnant relationship with Christ. Now, when we talk about silence and solitude, I promise we're going to get into the scripture. I'm just trying, I have some of this stuff in my memory, so I'm trying to get it out before I forget. When we talk about silence and solitude, um, the first part you would think is easy enough to define, silence, right? But there's both an external silence and an internal silence that we have to deal with. The external silence is a whole lot easier. You can typically find a quiet place um, where there's not a lot of noise. Uh, often, I, I get to practice my time of silence and solitude in the morning uh, after my wife has gone to work, but before the girls are up. Uh, so I have that time. And if I don't have that time at home, uh, and I'm here at the church uh, when there aren't 25 elementary school students running around for the lead program, uh, I can usually get away with it in my office as well. But external silence is actually pretty easy to get rid of. It's internal silence, or external noise, sorry, is pretty easy to get rid of. It's internal noise, very difficult. And I discovered this when I first started trying this practice. Uh, it was probably about a month ago now. And uh, what I discovered was, is as soon as all the external noise was canceled, well, then my internal dialogue started running. And I started thinking about stuff that I had to do, or I started thinking, how am I ever going to get through five minutes of this? Because that's what I started with, five minutes. How am I, uh, I going to shut up long enough to hear the voice of God? 
Um, things like that. And actually, the very first time I tried it, uh, the Lord spoke to me in a still small voice. He said, this is really hard for you, isn't it? To which I responded, yes. Now, for anybody who's never done it or is, is struggling with trying, it gets easier. And now I find myself really looking forward to that time in the morning. And um, I'm not saying I always can completely shut off the internal noise. Um, but I'm getting better at it. Now, solitude is, is the other side of it. And solitude is different from loneliness. We tend to think that solitude and loneliness are the same thing. Um, when you're practicing silence and solitude, the solitude part, you're not really lonely. You're with God. You're alone with yourself, allowing yourself to kind of decompress, to let your emotions out, to um, you know, take the big proverbial breath and relax. Um, but when you start to pay attention, when you start to silence the internal chatter, you realize that you're in the presence of God. Because we're always in the presence of God. Part of our problem is that we don't always recognize it. But for those of us who are believers in Christ, we are always in the presence of God. And so it's in those moments where you start to just kind of let go of the stuff that's pent up. You start to experience his presence and deal with maybe emotions or difficulties that you're going through. And uh, it's really become a wonderful time for me. But it's those moments where you get away from the noise, the external and internal noise, and you get alone, just you and God. And you're not really praying because that wouldn't be silencing your internal chatter. You're not really reading a Bible verse because that wouldn't be silencing. And not that the Bible is noise. Please don't take me wrong. And I always practice my silence and solitude after I've spent time reading the Bible and praying. But it's just being alone with God. And it's pretty incredible. So I told you to turn to Matthew chapter 4. I'm actually going to go back a few verses to Matthew chapter 3. Verse 13, it says, Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you're coming to me. But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven, saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And what's beautiful about this is not only do we see the Trinity present, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all at once, we see the Father essentially anointing Jesus for his public ministry by having the Spirit descend upon him. And for those who were there, and perhaps for Jesus himself, God was publicly identifying Jesus and giving him his earthly identity as his beloved son in whom he is well pleased. Then, chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights afterward, he was hungry. 
Now, we're going to kind of, I'm going to go through this real quick because not really going to talk about the temptation so much. The tempter came and said, if you're the son of God, which really should be translated since you're the son of God, command these stones to become bread. He answered, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you and in their hands they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, it is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these are things I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And the devil left him and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Now there's a lot of things we could talk about. From 1 John chapter 4, that Jesus was tempted with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, just like Eve was back in chapter 3. We could talk about the fact that Jesus used scripture. In fact, he quoted from Deuteronomy every single time. Even when the devil tried to use scripture, he quoted from Psalm 91. Jesus still quoted scripture applied correctly, because the devil took that out of context and tried to use it as an excuse to tempt God, which it was not, and Jesus responded. We could talk about how the devil offered him the world, which he could do because he is the God of this world. Even though Jesus has purchased the earth back to himself, he hasn't claimed it yet. He will when he returns. There's a lot of things we could talk about. We could get really specific about the verses Jesus used. We could get very specific about how Jesus overcame the temptation. Hebrews tells us that he was tempted in all points, yet he did not sin. We touched on verse 11 last Sunday when the angels came and ministered to him and we were looking at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, where the, the angels are ministering spirits. We could talk about a lot of that. And there's nothing wrong with talking about that. I highly encourage you to study that at great length for yourself. But what we're going to do is go back to the first two verses. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And he fasted 40 days and 40 nights. Afterward, he was hungry. Now, John Mark Comer brings up the point that a lot of people see this and they question the logic. He led him into the wilderness. The Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. And he went 40 days and 40 nights without food. And he was hungry. Now, if I went 40 days and 40 nights without food, there's a really good possibility uh, that I would be cranky. Uh, I would probably lose about 20 pounds or maybe a little more. <laughs> Who knows? Um, but the point is, um, physically, Jesus was probably weak. But spiritually, this was the strongest he'd ever been in his physical body. I mean, he's God. Spiritually, he's going to be very strong. But something we see with Jesus is Jesus needed rest in his human body. Jesus needed food in his human body. We see him eating. Jesus needed um, the physical things that any human body would need. But spiritually, he was at the height of his spiritual power to begin his ministry by defeating the devil in this temptation. And so we have to ask why. 
Well, really, there's two spiritual disciplines that we see here. One is going into the wilderness, and two is fasting. And we're not going to talk about fasting. Right? Fasting, okay, I'm going to talk about fasting for a moment, just so I don't have to talk about fasting anymore. Fasting is not a bad thing. In fact, we are commanded to fast. If you turn a, a couple chapters to the right in the book of Matthew, um, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount talks about when you fast. Right? Not if, but when. And fasting is very often and should be very often related to giving up food for a period of time. Now, maybe you skip a meal and spend that time praying. Maybe you fast for two or three days. Uh, the longest I've ever gone uh, in a total fast was, uh, was three days. Um, and really, actually, the first day was the hardest. The second day got easier. The third day, it was actually much, much easier. My body had kind of given up on eating, I think, at that point. Um, and then when you break that fast, of course, you should do it slowly. Uh, don't go three days without fasting and then go to KFC and eat a bucket of chicken. You will get very, very ill. Um, but that's one spiritual discipline that we should be practicing. But I said we were going to talk about silence and solitude. So we're going to go back to verse 1. Jesus was led by the Spirit where? Into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, the word for wilderness in great Greek, 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 the word for wilderness in Greek is eremos. And it has a multitude of meanings. One of them can be wilderness. Uh, but the word John Mark Comer focuses on, or the definition that he focused on in the message was the quiet place. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the quiet place. Now, as you continue throughout Scripture, all four Gospels, there are various instances of this. Remember um, when Jesus fed the 5,000, he sent them away, he sent the disciples across the lake. And what did he do? Well, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. He was tired. He'd been working all day. They actually went there to try to get away from the crowds, but the crowds went there anyway, and he had compassion on them. And when he was there, he sent the disciples away, and what he probably should have done was taken a nap. That's probably what I would have done. But instead, he stayed up all night to pray. Till like 3 o'clock in the morning when he finally walked on water out to the disciples. And uh, I encourage you, spend some time going through the Gospels and look at this very important practice of Jesus. Here, he was led by the Spirit into the quiet place. Many other times, he just chooses to go into that quiet place so that he can be alone with his father, getting away from the external noise. And, well, he's God, so I don't know if he had the same internal noise that I do. Probably not, but as God in human flesh, maybe he did deal with some of those things. So Jesus teaches us the importance of the practice of silence and solitude. And in doing so, we're going to turn back to 1 Kings chapter 18, where we're going to really see this in action and the spiritually restorative effect that it has. So Elijah was a prophet. And um, if you read through 1 Kings, which I highly encourage, you should read the whole Bible, Genesis to Revelation, uh, and we are actually teaching through the whole Bible on Wednesday nights. We'll be back in Judges next week. 
Um, but as you read through it and, and you read about Elijah, Elijah had a tough go of it. He was obedient to the Lord, and he was prophesying in the nation of Israel when there was a particularly wicked king by the name of Ahab. Now, Ahab himself might have not been so bad, but he married a woman who worshipped pagan gods like Baal and manipulated her husband and influenced her husband into worshipping pagan gods and essentially, um, well, she essentially ran the country through Ahab because he, he, as you read, he didn't do a whole lot without consulting his wife. Eventually, it kind of comes to a head. And Elijah gathers all the people on Mount Carmel. Now, Mount Carmel was kind of the center of Baal worship at the time. And he gathers 450 priests of Baal, and he goes, all right, here's the deal. You choose a bowl first. You choose first. I'll choose a bowl first. You build an altar, then I'll build an altar. You call out to your God, and I'll call out to mine. And whichever God answers by fire, that is God. If it's Baal, fine. If it's Jehovah, then so be it. But whoever he does, whoever answers by fire. So the, the prophets of Baal, all 450 of them, they leapt on it. They cried out. They cut themselves until they were bleeding all over the altar. But nothing happened. And of course, if you read it real carefully and you pay real close attention to the Hebrew, at one point in time, Elijah mocks them and says, maybe he's in the bathroom. That's why he's not answering. Uh, I do believe sarcasm is a spiritual gift. So Elijah sets up his altar, butchers his bull, and then he says, go get water. Now, they were in the middle of a drought. A drought brought on because God told Elijah to pray for a drought. He did pray for that drought, and they had been three-plus years without rain. So he says, pour water on. So they pour water on the wood. He says, do it a second time, and they pour water on the wood. And he says, do it a third time, to the point that the trench around the altar was filled with water. The altar was soaked with water. The sacrifice was soaked with water. And he looks to heaven and he says, Lord, hear me, that these people will know that you're God. And the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the dust, and all the water. And he said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Seize the prophets of Baal. They kill them all. Then he prays and the drought ends. That is a spiritual victory. When you cry out to God to send fire down and consume your sacrifice, and then God strengthens you to kill 450 false prophets who had been leading the people astray, spiritual victory. Well, Ahab, being the little whiner that he is, or was, he goes home and tells his wife, Elijah killed all the prophets. And she said, fine, I'm going to kill him. And Elijah, well, he just goes from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows. We pick up in verse 3 of chapter 19 of 1 Kings. When he saw that, he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. He himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under the broom tree. And he prayed that he might die and said, It is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. 
Essentially, his prayer was a suicide note. Kill me, I'm done. He lays and he lay down and he slept under the broom tree. An angel woke him up and said to him, Arise and eat. Then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water, so he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back as a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he, arise, he arose and ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights, as far as Oreb, the mountain of God. Now we're going we're gonna to move forward here, but I want you to notice something. In his silence and solitude, um, do we see Elijah reading scripture extensively? And again, I'm not advocating that you don't read scripture. You should. We must read the word of God. As Jesus said in Matthew chapter 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We should pray. We're commanded in 1 Thessalonians 5.17 to pray without ceasing. So I'm not saying you shouldn't, but in the time of silence and solitude, it's okay to do something else. What did he do for what was essentially the first 24 hours or so of his silence and solitude. He ate, he drank, and he slept. That's pretty cool. I can get behind a spiritual practice that involves eating, sleeping, and drinking. <laughs> right? Water. He drank water. So he tells him to get up and to go 40 days and 40 nights. Very interesting. 40 in the Bible is a picture of judgment or a number of judgment. So 40 days and 40 nights. And not that Elijah was being judged. The nation was, was being judged. Jesus wasn't being judged, but he was there to deal with sin, to take the judgment for our sin. But 40 is always a number of judgment. And he goes to Oreb, the mountain of God. And this was an important place. Here it's called Oreb, but in other places in scripture it has another name. We call it Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is where the children of Israel settled after God delivered them from Egypt. Mount Sinai is where the fire of God burned the top of the mountain. Mount Sinai is where Moses went up and received the law and then brought down and shared it with the nation of Israel. Mount Sinai was the place where they met God. So yeah, he started his silence and solitude with eating drinking and rest. It said it took 40 days and 40 nights for him to get to Mount Oreb. Um, but if I remember correctly, it's like 200 or so miles from where he was near Beersheba, a day's journey outside of Beersheba to Mount Oreb. Well, back then, a day's journey was about 20 miles. So this journey should have taken him 10 days. He was walking a little slower, maybe two weeks. But it took him a month and 10 days to get there, over five weeks, which meant he was taking his time. And there's a lesson to be learned in that. We can't rush silence and solitude. And now everybody has a different personality type. Some people are like me. They're very impatient. I set a five-minute goal when I began the practice of silence and solitude because I didn't think I could go longer. And in reality, the first couple weeks, that five minutes was hard enough. Now, some people, this may come more naturally to them. Maybe you're an introvert. I am clearly an extrovert. Um, maybe you're an introvert and sitting quietly comes naturally to you. So 
having a practice of silence and solitude that's 10, 15 minutes or 20 minutes or half an hour or an hour wouldn't be difficult for you. But the point is, don't rush it. It's okay. You have to take that time to silence the external noise and the internal noise so you can rest in the presence of God and hear his voice. Because that's what we're going to see happen. When he got there, he went into a cave and he spent the night in the place. And so what did he do? He slept again. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, verse 9, and said to him, What are you doing, Elijah? That's an interesting question. How often does God want to know that answer? Did God know what he was doing? Of course God knew what he was doing. He wasn't asking Elijah, so God wasn't asking Elijah so that he could know, but so that Elijah could know. And part of being in this time of silence and solitude is so God can reveal things to us about ourselves. It's not always good. I'm going to tell you that right now. Because sometimes when you get quiet and you rest in the presence of God, he's going to tell you stuff about yourself that maybe you don't want to hear. A place in your life that you need to repent. Or maybe it's not something sinful, but it's just a place in your life where you're not seeking him, or you're not trusting him, or you're not, insert the blank. Something I can tell you is, God will do that. But look at Elijah's answer. I've been very zealous for you, for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. What was Elijah's answer? Kind of a pity party, wasn't it? I'm the only one that does what you say and nobody else is listening and everyone's abandoned the covenant. I'm the only one. I'm the only one serving you. I'm the only one, Lord. Now they're trying to kill me. Now, we're going to find out that's not entirely true, but God was trying to show Elijah something about himself. So he said, verse 11, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. So it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Suddenly a voice came to him and said, Elijah, what are you doing here? He gives the same answer. I've been zealous for the Lord God of hosts. Children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left. And they seek to take my life. But I want you to notice something. And I think every preacher who's ever preached on 1 Kings 19 has, has noticed this or said this. The Lord wasn't in the wind. He wasn't in the earthquake. He wasn't in the fire. But he was in the still small voice. Guess what has to happen in order to hear the still small voice? Well, the wind, the earthquake, and the fire have to pass. We have to get away from the noise. And when we do, God will speak to us. 
and we'll be able to hear his voice. Now, what do you think Elijah really discovered about himself? Verse 15, the Lord said, go home. Return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, anoint Hazael as king over Syria. You shall anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel, Meholah, you shall anoint his prophet in your place. It shall be whoever escapes the sword of Hazael, Jehu will kill. And whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. One of the things I think that's so interesting here is the only part of what Elijah said that God addressed was that there were 7,000 in Israel, so he wasn't alone. It's the only part he addressed. What did he do? Elijah, you've had your rest. You got your emotions out. You were able to decompress. Now go back to work. Anoint this guy king, anoint that guy king, and anoint your replacement. Now, Elisha followed Elijah. I always wanted to have twin boys so I could use those names. And I think the Lord had mercy on my wife and our children, so that never happened. Um, and Elisha becomes Elijah's servant and follows him and eventually uh, takes his place as prophet. But the end of the silence and solitude for Elijah here is a rediscovery of who he is. Right? Not a rediscovery of who the world wants him to be. Not a rediscovery of who Jezebel and Ahab think he is. Not a rediscovery of who the Israelites think he is. But a rediscovery of who God says he is. This kind of ties in with what we talked about with Gideon. Almighty man of valor. Right? God doesn't look at us and call us for who we think we are or who the world says we are, but who he says we are. Our identity must be found in Christ. And one of the ways, if you've never discovered it, or one of the ways, perhaps, if you've lost it along the way, through the distractions of the world or the stresses of life, or sin, or whatever else might cause you to lose your identity in Christ, one of the ways to rediscover that is silence and solitude. It's getting into a place where you can hear his voice. You know, and God may use scripture in that time. And God may use something else. Maybe just the spirit speaking to your heart or impression he lays on you. But you're not going to know until you shut up and listen. That's the spiritual way of putting it. And I think Elijah is such a beautiful example of what that looks like. Jesus, of course, is our ultimate example. We, as followers of Christ, should be seeking to do the things he did and living the way he lived. But I think Elijah is a beautiful example. He came to a place where he was so overwhelmed that the only place he had left to run was the presence of God. And God met him there. And God spoke to him there. And God let him have rest there. 
And God gave him something good to eat there. And God spoke to him there. And God helped Elijah rediscover who he was. So how do you do this practically? Well, we've been talking about this in our church for a while. A few weeks anyway, ever since uh, the Lord put this bug in me. Um, for me, it was simple. Every morning, I read the Bible. Uh, I read some from the Old Testament. I read some from the New Testament. And then I pray. And I journal. And you don't, you don't have to do it this way, but this is what I do. And I pray and I journal. And uh, this year, I've been praying through the Psalms, which has been a very rewarding um, practice for me. And then when I'm done, I put my Bible down, I put my journal down, I put my pen away, my phone is on silent, and I just get quiet. And now, I'm not going to be all tell you how super spiritual I am because I look at the clock, and several times throughout that practice, my eyes tend to creep open to see if I've gotten my five minutes. Sometimes I don't stop until God tells me I'm done. Usually, well, I mean, sometimes I think the longest I've gone is about 10 minutes. But I just get quiet before the Lord. And maybe, maybe that's difficult. I mean, maybe somebody is going to listen to this and they're like, I have small kids. I can't do that. Okay. Well, maybe you, you and your spouse take turns. Or maybe when you drop them off at school or you drop them off at daycare before you go to work, you just sit in your car, not with the radio on or anything else, and you just take a couple minutes to sit silently before the Lord, to clear out all that external noise. Maybe you go for a walk. Find a nice, quiet trail. For those of us in Gunnison, that's easy. We have, I, I can't remember how many hundreds, thousands of miles of trails surround the Gunnison area. I don't, I don't know where your quiet place, where your Aramos will be. But find it. And, and I think you will find this is a very rewarding practice. But the second thing is, give yourself a lot of grace as you begin this practice. I've had to, because there's been some mornings where two, three minutes in, I was done, and I was trying to listen, and I couldn't quiet the internal noise, and I decided instead of making myself frustrated or pretending to be something I'm not, I would just move on with my day. And if that happens, okay. Like anything else, it's going to take time. So give yourself a lot of grace. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you meet us in the quiet place. Speak to us. God, give us ears to hear your voice. Help us to quiet the noise of the world around us, to quiet the internal noise and all the distractions that are going to try to keep us from hearing your voice. Give us the grace to have this practice and to use it so that we can discover or rediscover or grow in who you've created us to be. All for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Next week, we'll get back to Judges. Until then, well, I love you because you're my family. Those on Facebook, I love you too. Have an amazing week.